Well, good morning. It's a beautiful, if not slightly warm, November morning that uh, we get to join together in worship, communion, and song this morning. It's a joy to always gather with the saints and share in these things together. Question I have for you. How can you know someone takes something seriously? What is it that gives it away that it's serious? Well, think about friendships, for example. How do you know that it's a serious friend versus a casual friend? They put time into the relationship. They put effort into it. They make it a priority. You know, we're in election season. Imagine for a second if someone was constantly telling you how important it was to vote, how they'd love to talk politics and all these things, but then Tuesday rolls around and they never go to vote. How seriously do you think they really take it? When fire alarms go off, how do you know who is taking it seriously? Someone's pushing everybody down to get out the door, right? It's the people running. It's those who are doing something about it. So let me ask you this question. How can you tell that a person takes sin seriously? How can you tell that you take sin seriously? This morning in our text from Matthew, Jesus addresses the seriousness of sin. In a positive light, he identifies how do you identify, how do you recognize Someone who loves God, who pursues God. But he does this by highlighting the seriousness of sin. He provides a stern warning to those who encourage or cause others to sin. But he also turns his attention to us individually. He reminds us of the personal responsibility we each have to rid our lives of sin. If you haven't already opened your Bible, I encourage you to do that as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 18. We'll pick up this morning in verse 6. It may appear a little abrupt, and this is an interesting passage. Most commentators note that it is somewhat difficult to figure out exactly how to structure it. There's a lot here, a lot contained here, and it kind of moves right from one thought, one important teaching into the next. So we'll have to do a little bit of context setting when we get into it, but we're going to pick up by reading in verse 6 this morning. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck, to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling blocks come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. It is better that you enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning, as we look into this text, Father, we pray that you would help us to see afresh and to recognize afresh the seriousness of sin, the seriousness with which we need to go about ridding ourselves, weeding sin from our lives. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that your spirit would do its work within all who believe here this morning to convict, to prod, to prick, to help guide us and lead us into all truth, to the application of your truth so that we would be not merely hearers, but doers of your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our passage this morning is immensely practical. It's challenging, somewhat terrifying, but it's absolutely necessary for the world in which we live. In Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 18, 6 through 11, we really uncover three different emphases concerning the seriousness of sin. First of which is a warning against tempting or leading others into sin. Secondly, there's an admonition to weed sin from our own lives. And then finally, there's a reassurance that God is actively involved in the lives of his children. We're going to take each of these emphases in turn this morning. But before we do, just a brief setting of the context, you may remember our passage ended last week with the encouragement and the recognition that to receive one who is a child of God, one of these little ones, to welcome them and to show them deference, to avoid showing favoritism, is to receive Christ himself, is, is if you receive Christ himself. You may remember the example that I gave where Paul uses very similar language when he writes to Philemon regarding Onesimus, the escaped slave, and said that if you receive him, you receive me. It's that idea of when you receive this one, you are doing me a great service. It is as if you are serving me. If my children or my wife were to uh, come and visit you while I was traveling or you came into their home, in fact, this actually happened not that long ago where I was traveling and I was busy and I found out that others had taken care of my family, brought them a meal just to encourage them. It was as if I had been encouraged. It was as if you had done it for me. In much the same way, Christ says, when you do this to them, you do it for me. The obvious implication is that there is blessing, there is favor for how we treat others, particularly those who are humble and unassuming, and to avoid that temptation that creeps in with all of us to, avoid, to show favoritism. It's very reminiscent of the writer of Hebrews, his exhortation in Hebrews 13:2, where he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this, some, and you probably know the passage, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Well, Jesus moves on from verse 5 there. And he moves from the blessing that accompanies showing care and hospitality toward the children of the kingdom to warnings over causing a child of God to sin. 
As Leon Morris says, from the privilege, Jesus moves to the responsibility. Just as receiving the little child properly brings such a great reward, so acting against the interests of the child brings a severe punishment. See, all of this is about how we live in relation to one another as children of the kingdom. And it's here that in verses 6 through 7, we see the first emphasis, this warning against tempting or leading others into sin. And you see this word stumble appear several times, or stumbling. It's probably good that we not stumble over this word, so let's make sure that we're defining it the same, that we're using it in a, at least a similar way. The term stumble either as a verb is scandalizo or as the noun scandalon. It really needs to be interpreted in its context, and this is because it has a very literal usage when it refers to something a person literally trips over. Or in its verbal form, causing someone to fall or to trip or to be caught in a net or ensnared. For example, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see these same words used for one such place is in Leviticus 19.14 where it says, You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. It's a quite literal usage of a stumbling block or a snare that grabs the foot, either tripping or entrapping. And this very literal rendering took on a, as it became a very natural way or a very natural metaphor for providing a figurative picture of a person's moral failings, where they fall morally in the Old Testament or where they sin. It was used as reference to a person or words or a thing that might tempt a person to sin as well as implying the entire process of a person falling or tripping into this sin. You see examples of this figurative usage in places like Judges 8.27, where Gideon makes an ephod. It's an image. It's something often used in worship. And he did it from all of the spoil of Midian. You remember the story of Gideon, the banging of the jars, the lighting of the fire, the testing of the men, and then the routing of Midian done by the Lord. Well, they took all the spoil, and he gathered together a bunch of the gold, made this ephod, placed it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. means they started worshiping this ephod as opposed to God. Started to show it more reverence than they did God. And it says, so that it became a scandalon, a snare to Gideon and his household in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Or in Psalm 106.36, they served their idols, which became a scandalon, or a snare to them. Or Psalm 119, 165, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to scandalizo, to stumble. And just as context determines the meaning of the term, whether a figurative reference to moral failing or an actual tripping and falling, so context determines whether or not the person or the thing causing the stumbling is morally responsible or guilty. For example, if I'm walking along and I trip over a rock, that rock isn't necessarily responsible for my tripping and falling. I may have been looking at my phone, may have been talking to someone, or otherwise distracted. So when it comes to people or events and circumstances and things, there's times where they are morally culpable, there's times when they're not. But one of the ways you can 
catch this, and the reason this is important is because Jesus himself is called a stumbling block. You recognize that, right? He is, in fact, the rock of offense. But we need to be careful because are we to say Jesus is somehow morally responsible for their failing, for their sin, for their stumbling? In Mark 6, 3, you hear the religious leader saying, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the mother, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense, scandalizo, at him. But one of the things that's really helpful is to pay attention to verb tenses. I know that's one of the most boring things to do, but it is one of the most helpful. Because when it's the middle or passive that is being used, it usually emphasizes the inherent moral failing or sin of the person that is actually stumbling. In other words, they took offense. Jesus isn't an active agent here. They took offense at him. It emphasizes the moral failings of these religious leaders. On the other hand, when it's the active tense, it usually emphasizes intent and culpability and responsibility on the part of the one causing the stumbling. In fact, we see Jesus was very careful with this. In Matthew 17, just a chapter earlier, we saw this when, you remember, he was talking with Peter, and he told Peter, we're, we're going to pay this tax to the temple tax collectors so that we do not offend them. We do not give them reason to sin. We don't want to be in any way participate in their sinning or causing them to sin. Or Paul, who writes in 1 Corinthians 8, saying, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. I wish I could be that brave. So that I will not cause my brother to stumble. To summarize then, the term scandalon or scandalizo, frequently translated as stumble or snare, it's often used figuratively to refer to these moral failings and sin. Now, return to the warning we've got in verses 6 through 7 against causing someone to stumble. How serious is this? I mean, really, how serious is it to cause someone to sin? I mean, aren't they responsible for their own actions? Well, Jesus refers to this heavy millstone. It's actually called the donkey stone. It's the donkey millstone because there's two different types. You could have the one that you know, your wife might use to beat up the grain so that for the baking that was going to go on, or you'd have the one that it took a beast of burden to turn that weighed hundreds of pounds. Even getting it off the ground to tie it around your neck was going to be an effort. It was different than that handheld millstone. There was no coming back up if this was tied around your neck and you were tossed into the sea. This would be a violent, a painful drowning. I'd say Jesus takes causing someone to stumble to sin seriously. You see, one of the great problems in the church is that we have stopped taking sin seriously. We're okay with small sins or little sins. We excuse them away by saying, well, we all sin. We all, we all make mistakes. God forgives. We excuse it away by saying no one is perfect. And those are true statements in and of themselves, but that misses the point. It doesn't make sin any less offensive toward God. 
You see, we're not measured by how much we look like other people, but by how much we look like Christ. We slide easily into sin when we take our eyes off of Christ and start comparing ourselves to others, when we lower the standard of holiness to those around us. If I try hard enough, I can always find somebody worse than myself. Or at least in my eyes. That's not the standard we're called to live by. But even worse are those who, in order to feel less guilty about their sin, they get others to participate in it. Whether deception, abuse, stealing, cursing, drunkenness, gluttony, you name it. I mean, if someone is prone to drunkenness and has come out of a lifestyle surrounded by that type of thing, you don't encourage them to drink. Someone struggles with gluttony, you don't take them to the all-you-can-eat buffet. If someone struggles with gambling, you don't take a stroll through Vegas or Atlantic City with them. You're careful to avoid doing, teaching, or encouraging anything that might aid in another believer stumbling, falling into sin. Really, this is just about preferring others. It's giving up and being willing to give up your rights, your freedoms to serve others. It's all about loving others. And so the question really is this, rather than just the negative, which is don't cause them to stumble, let's put it in the positive. And let me ask you this, do you love Christ and do you love others enough to give up what you want, what you prefer, and to encourage others towards holy and godly living? Are you willing to make the sacrifices necessary to do that? Because if not, then you do fall on the negative side of this. If not, you are opposing God himself. And that, that is a dangerous place to live. And who is it that has been caused to stumble here in these verses? Just to make sure we're on the same page. Who is it that's been caused to stumble? Well, it says the little ones, these little ones. And while Jesus used the example of the child, and we learned last week that the importance of a childlike faith, we learned that it was, in fact, a reference to those who become like children. Not in the imagined innocence and integrity of a child, which if you have children, you know is just that, imagination but rather who are spiritually poor and needy. A child, a young child cannot provide for themselves. They cannot cook for themselves. They cannot go out and get a job and earn money to have shelter for themselves. They need someone. They need someone to provide for them. That's what it means to become like a child, is to recognize your complete neediness when it comes to your spiritual well-being. So these little ones are those who humble themselves like children, who make themselves utterly dependent. And this is the requirement, as we learn in verse 3, of all who, all who enter the kingdom of God. Everyone who enters the kingdom of God must at some point recognize, prior to that entrance, their neediness and utter dependence on God. To recognize that like the child, they cannot care, they cannot tend for themselves, they cannot save themselves, they cannot forgive their own sins, they cannot earn the forgiveness for their own sins. But instead to cry out in utter dependence and to lay oneself wholly at the mercy 
of God and to rely on the blood of Christ. This is required of all who are disciples and children of God. But we also recognize, because we recognize this in our own lives, that this is an attitude that must continually be nurtured. We must continually remind ourselves of our neediness and our spiritual poverty that none of us have arrived. Because what happens is we go a day, a week, a month, and we think, I've got this Christian thing together. I got this. I see what this is all about. I know how to do this. But we must take heed lest we fall. And that's precisely the point of Jesus' teaching is in these passages concerning the seriousness of sin. Because the moment we stop relying, the moment we stop being children and recognizing our neediness to fight sin, the quicker we will fall. Notice, though, in verses 6 and 7, there's, there's this ellipsis. An ellipsis is it's an unstated ending. It's better be careful or else. We're told it would be better that the one who causes a child of God to sin, to be, it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with an enormous weight around their neck, but we are not told better than what? You see, that's left to our imagination. It's left hanging in the air, the threat and the fear of what could be so terrible that drowning and suffocation would be preferable is left unstated. We know from the context that it has to do with the judgment of God, but that's as specific as we can get. And the unstated nature of this terror makes it all the worse. Jesus concludes this emphasis on the external by noting that Stumbling blocks are all around us, all around us in this world. It is inevitable that we run into these temptations to sin, sometimes brought on by persons, sometimes because of our own sinfulness and just the circumstances, the things of life that come along, but we're going to run into them all the time. So the next question, the question that automatically should jump into your mind, I know it jumps into my mind, is if these are going to be all around me, if I'm going to see these all the time, then what do I do? How do I deal with this? What do we do when we encounter them? And that's what the next emphasis looks at, our personal responsibility with regard to sin. We have an admonition for weeding sin out of our own life. You see, we don't get to blame others for our sin. Yes, these exist all around us. Yes, there are people actively trying to get us to sin. Yes, life is hard. Yes, we have a sin nature. Yes, it's going to be difficult to live as a Christian in this world, but you don't get to blame anyone or anything about it. We will be held accountable for every sinful word, every sinful deed, and every sinful thought. That's why the second admonition or the second emphasis is so important, an admonition to rid or weed sin out of our own lives. Why is it that taking responsibility for our actions is so hard? And this starts at a young age, doesn't it? You hear arguments between children and you go to find out what happened and it's, well, they hit me. Well, did you hit them? Yes, but they made me hit them. You know, but it doesn't, it, we really never grow out of it. 
Just look at some of the political debates. We don't grow out of this, this tendency to want to blame someone else, to blame others for our sin. And there is the reality that, like we just talked about, there are circumstances and there are people trying to get us to sin. Which is why Jesus moves here from the outward to the inward. And the language we see here in these next couple of verses, it's very familiar, especially if you are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you've been with us through the study of Matthew. We've seen this language before, this somewhat radical and decisive language to rid ourselves of these things, of anything that hinders our sanctification. Now, the point of these verses is not to go out and do physical amputation. Let's make that very clear. It's figurative, but it is supposed to be shocking. It is supposed to get your attention. It is supposed to make you think that if there is anything causing me to sin, I need to rid it from my life. So I would see the seriousness of sin. And the point of these verses is not to talk about one specific sin. In fact, it's a, it's a term we, we would call metonymy, where it's referring, it uses the eyes, the hands, the feet, the nose, the mouth, the ear, all of those things refer, you might say, to the whole person. It's anything and everything that might cause you to sin. All sin. It's the seriousness of all sin. All sin is equally serious before God and must be dealt with as serious. And yes, it's true that some sins cause more damage here on earth. Some will even result in greater punishment in hell. But every single sin requires the blood of Christ. Every single sin, no matter how small it may be to us, no matter how small we might judge it to be, is enough to condemn you to eternity in hell apart from the forgiveness offered at the cross. Every sin is that serious. Every single sin, no matter how white the lie, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how unintentional the sin was, was enough to condemn you to hell and require the blood of Christ. And so, yes, all sin is serious. So before you say this is a small sin or this doesn't hurt anyone else, Remember that every single sin was serious enough and weighty enough to require the humiliation of the Son of God, His suffering, and His death on the cross. So the question naturally arises, how seriously am I taking sin in my own life? Have you become complacent with your sin? Have you become tolerant of your sin? I appreciate a book Jerry Bridges wrote years ago, called respectable sins. Do you realize how many sins we really consider to be respectable? We allow them to flourish, to exist in our lives, in our churches. And he didn't write that so that we would consider them respectable. He's calling them out. The farmer who fails to tend the garden wakes up one morning to find that weeds have taken over. And what was once a relatively small task is now a Herculean effort to try and weed it back. We have to likewise make it a daily habit to identify and weed out sin in our life. And here's your practical homework for the week if you needed some. 
is end each day this week by reflecting on the events of the day and taking the time to confess sin specifically. And identify at least one area in your life where you find yourself easily tempted to sin. And make a list of what you are going to do and do it to weed it from your life. Just start there. There's one other important step, and that's to pray and ask the Spirit of God to help you in this fight. To not rely on your own strength, but to call on God to help you. Because just as the farmer can weed and work, he cannot make the rain fall or the sun to shine. So we must call to the Spirit of God, call upon the Spirit of God to work in the garden of our lives, to cultivate the fruit of righteousness as you seek to walk in obedience. Verses 10 and 11, Jesus returns to the warning of how we treat others as he closes out this this brief section. And he does so by reminding us that God is carefully watching over his children. This third emphasis contains a reassurance that God is actively involved in the lives of his children. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Be careful you do not look down upon these little ones. What does he mean? Well, to look down upon them is to say that you consider these persons unimportant. Not important enough to be of concern or worthy of your time or your effort. We've all been guilty of this before, haven't we? That person's annoying. That person's just weird. That person and I just don't click. Well, that person's a Democrat. That person's a Republican. Be careful that you do not despise other persons made in the image of God, especially those who are children of God. This has tremendous implications for the life of the church and how we relate to one another. There is no second-class citizen in the kingdom of heaven. There is great significance to the fact that God has created every person in his image. And we need to live like it. We need to speak like it. We need to act like it. Be careful that you do not despise other persons made in the image of God, especially, particularly, those who are children of God. Jesus tells a parable later of these renters of a vineyard who owed their rent, and he sent his son to go, well, first he sent servants to go and collect, and they beat him and sent him back, and eventually he sends his son, and they kill him. And Jesus takes very seriously how you treat his children. There it was a picture and a reminder of what was going to happen to the Son of God. But he takes very seriously how his children are treated. And we see that in this verse. You see, there's a warning couched here in what is a rather comforting statement to children of God. Although I'll readily admit it's a bit enigmatic, confusing as well. 
says, For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. The four there, after the instruction on how they are to act, is, makes it clear that from the context we can recognize this as a warning. But how are we to understand this phrase, their angels in heaven, and, and what does this warning even mean? Well, first, this passage is by itself not enough to build a doctrine of personal guardian angels. And I do not believe, nor am I convinced, that Scripture provides sufficient support for the idea of personal guardian, guardian angels, that we each have our own angel who sits there watching us and walking around with us. I do, however, think this is a reference to God's continual and watchful care over his children. And let me explain to you how I think that works out. You see, the there here refers not to each individual by themselves, but to the group collectively, to all who are children of God. It refers to this group, these children, these least of them. And so the reference to their angels refers more broadly to the ministry of angels to all believers. It's not saying each one, everybody has their own guardian angel, but rather we, we as believers have the angels of God ministering to us. In fact, the writer of Hebrews notes this in Hebrews 1.14. Where he says, are they not all ministering spirits, speaking of the angels, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And what about the reference to then to the angels continually seeing the face of my Father who is in heaven? Well, this is a reminder that they are divinely appointed to minister and they receive their instructions directly from God the Father. They are sent out to minister to and defend the children of God as they execute God's orders. It's a reminder likewise that God sees all, observes all, knows all. We see this in Daniel where we see angels sent to shut the mouths of the lions. In Psalm 91, I think it's perhaps a passage Jesus even had in mind when he made this statement in the context of stumbling. In Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, we read, But he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. See, the point is that God is always watching. He's actively involved in the affairs of this life and the next. He's protecting, he's preserving, he is punishing, and even rewarding on the basis of how we treat even the least in the kingdom of heaven. And the comfort here to the child of God is that God cares. But there's a warning here to any who would despise a child of God. And it's this, that God is always watching. Nothing escapes his notice. We will give an account for everything, sometimes in this life, always in the next. So verse 11 closes out this section and functions as a transition to the coming verses where we learn what Jesus means by lost. We will see and learn the extent to which Jesus will go to to rescue one that is lost. And what we'll learn is that this term lost in the context of these coming verses doesn't mean what most people think it means when they first read this. So you can come back next week if you want to learn that or better yet, study it for yourselves.
As we conclude our time this morning, I want to return to the question we asked at the beginning, how seriously do I take sin? How seriously do you take sin? These verses provide us with warning. They provide us with instruction. But action is required. That's how we know we take sin seriously. Action is required. First, certainly to ensure we're not leading others into sin. Secondly, to weed sin out in our own lives. But I want to make two final comments. First, if you have not humbled yourself as a child, if you have not repented of your sins, then any efforts you give to either not causing someone to stumble or to cease from sinning yourself is going to end in utter frustration. It's like trying to drive the car without gas. You can sit there turning the key in the ignition all you want. You're not going to go anywhere. You must start by recognizing your spiritual neediness, that you are unable to save yourself. It begins by crying out to God for forgiveness of your sins because Jesus came and died and paid the debt that you owed. It's only then that you'll be able to start truly ceasing from sin. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, you've never cried out to the Lord for forgiveness, you maybe have not recognized how serious sin is to God, then I beg of you, call out to him this morning. Cry out to him. Confess that you can't do it. You can't earn forgiveness. You can't make yourself righteous before him. You can't save yourself. And the good news, the good news of the gospel is that there is no one he has ever turned away. Secondly, for those who are children of God already, this process of putting sin to death, or as John Owen would say, of mortifying the flesh, it requires constant diligence and effort. But it also requires constant prayer and reliance on the Spirit. And I think that's where I so often fail. I get going, and at some point I forget to pray. I have a few small victories, and Consciously or unconsciously, I think I've got this. I get into the routine of doing it myself, fighting it myself. I forget how needy, I forget how weak, how incapable I am of winning the fight against sin. I really think quite highly of myself. Any of us who think that we can fight sin and put sin to death by ourselves think far too highly of ourselves and our abilities. If I want to cultivate the fruit of righteousness, it is only going to come through the aid and the assistance of the Spirit of God at work in my life. And one of the most beautiful, the most natural, and the simplest ways to do this is prayer. Prayer is one of the most easily neglected but most necessary tools in the fight against sin and stumbling in this life. Why is that, you might ask? Well, what is prayer? Certainly we talk about thanksgiving. We come and give thanks. But at its root, at its heart, prayer is going and recognizing my neediness and asking for help. It's humbling myself like I should be doing and saying, Lord, help me. I can't do this. And so do not neglect prayer in this process of fighting against sin. 
Prayer is one of those simplest but most necessary demonstrations of our neediness. And it is a tremendous means of grace in this life. Well, with that said, let's pray. Father, this morning we want to confess our neediness. Father, we want to confess our sinfulness, our pride, our arrogance that would let us think that we can win this fight against sin on our own. Father, I confess my own pride in going far too long before I re- recognizing, before realizing how much I'm trying to do on my own. Pray that you would help each of us here this morning be aware of our weakness, of doing a better job of estimating ourselves and recognizing how poorly equipped we are by ourselves to win this fight against sin, to even prevent ourselves from encouraging or causing others to stumble into sin. Father, I pray that you would protect us from these things, that you would guard us, that you would draw us closer and nearer to yourself. Father, I pray that you would just cultivate within Canton Bible Church just a, a attitude, a practice, a habit, a pattern of prayer, of thanksgiving, of confession, of repentance over sin. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the encouraging words that are found within this. We thank you for those angels we don't see that minister to our needs. Father, oh, it's something I don't think about very often. But Lord, we thank you for the ways that you are at work and constantly working that we do not see, we do not recognize. But Father, we know you're there. We know you see and hear all. Pray these things in your name. Amen.